Hello and welcome to Infinite Machine Learning. This is Pratik Joshi. In this podcast, we talk to amazing builders in machine learning and find out how they built their careers. I saw a, a funny picture today. Uh, it was Van Gogh, and the caption said, "Until I have my coffee, go away." Get it? Van Gogh, go away. All right, before you go away, let me introduce you to our guest. We have Chad Sanderson on the show today. He is the head of data at Convoy. He is a scout for Sequoia Capital investing in machine learning and data startups. He has previously been a scout for Cowboy Ventures and Innovation Endeavors. He has been an advisor to Tola Capital and an LP to Essence Venture Capital. He's a prolific builder of data products and has built everything from feature stores to experimentation platforms to streaming platforms to data discovery systems and workflow development platforms. I'd like to thank Joe Reyes for making the connection. In today's episode, we'll talk about the modern data stack, why it's a mess, uh, how Chad identifies great ML and data startups, what's it like being a scout for Sequoia Capital, uh, data modeling, and data collaboration tools. All right, let's go. Chad, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. All right, let's dive straight in. You recently posted on LinkedIn that data modeling has become a, a second-class citizen at modern tech companies, and their need for quick insights leads to uh, infrastructure that's never designed for scale. Right, and and you know, hundred thousand people saw the post, thousand people liked it. Clearly, it resonated. So, can you explain? Uh, to start with, can you explain what data modeling is for our listeners, and then why has it become a, a second-class citizen? You think? Absolutely. So to start with, data modeling, simply put, is um, is creating relationships between uh, with, within your data, and generally that starts from entities. So these are objects or domain and other entities or other objects and the attributes that they have that we're collecting from the real world and uh, real world events or behaviors that those uh, entities uh, practice. Um, there's two places where data modeling typically happens. You sort of have the semantic uh, modeling environment. So this is where you're thinking about how does the real world operate? How does the business operate? And how do these sort of real-world business concepts connect to each other? And then there's the sort of physical data model, which is how is that uh, manifested in um, like a storage environment, like a, like a cloud data warehouse, as an example. Like practically, how do we join data together and, and things like that. Um, the reason I think that it's a bit of a dying art form is because... Um, Really, the semantic, uh, the, the art of uh, data modeling uh, semantically makes the uh, physical data model much easier to leverage and, and much easier to create. And when that semantic data model does not exist, then sort of inversely, it makes the physical data model much more difficult to create. The connect, there are connections and relationships that are missing, that are uh, impossible to craft, that require a lot of sort of custom SQL to do. Um, and so, so people do it uh, less frequently, and it's not happening in as, in as centralized of a way. Uh, previously, it was the role of the data architect to to create this uh, semantic model. 
Um, and then when the data is generated in, uh, in production, it corresponds to the semantic model that was defined. And so building out the physical model is actually quite straightforward. Um, as we have moved to this world of extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily high velocity feature development, the role of the data architect acting as the bottleneck for uh, data design has basically gone away. Like if you look at most startups today, you, you don't see a data architect. Maybe you see them, uh, once the company gets, gets quite large. Um, but, but generally speaking, it's, it's not a role that exists for, for the majority of early stage companies. What that results in is data being pushed, um, without a clear semantic model from, uh, from everywhere, from production databases, from our front end applications, from um, back-end services, from third-party tools, all of that gets more or less dumped uh, into some storage environment. And, and so now all people really have to uh, ha- have to work with is, is this physical model. There's no guide. There's no set of instructions that allows them to, to build that effectively. Right. That's a, that's a great point. And you mentioned something interesting about startups. And uh, it's a good segue into my next question about the modern data stack. Now, you've been vocal about your viewpoint on it. And uh, in layman's terms, can you talk about why the modern data stack is a mess? Uh, first of all, what? how do you define modern data stack? Mm-hmm. And uh, why is it uh, messy today? Yeah. The modern data stack is really... Um, any tool that is used um, somewhere in in the ETL pipeline, uh, whether it's a, a extraction or instrumentation, a storage, a transformation, um, some some uh, part of a workflow that is used to get data from point A to point B and make it useful and usable to downstream customers, specifically in the cloud. Right. So, so the common tools that operate in the cloud are like Fivetran, where you can, uh, they have connectors, you connect to a source location, you connect to a destination, and in batch, you can push data between these locations on some interval. Um, you have tools like DBT, where there's a command line for, uh, uh, uh doing uh, data modeling and transformations within the warehouse. There's a lot of BI tools that are built for the cloud, right? Um, and so one of the reasons that uh, the uh, one of sort of the, the common challenges uh, or one of the benefits really of the of the modern data stack that results in a challenge is that it's very, very easy to onboard to. It doesn't require a lot of thinking or process about the data that you need or how the data should be designed or how it should be modeled up front in advance. And what it results in is people saying, okay, I have this pipeline. Like I have a reasonable pipeline. It works. I can get data from, from, from point A to point B. So then I should just throw everything that I have at that pipeline and, and it's all going to work out. Right. And, and that's clearly not going to be the case because data is, is, is only as useful as the network effects that, that it creates. Um, when we do analytics or when we try to understand a business problem, we're trying to understand um, not just how a single entity behaved, but how that entity behaved in context of other entities within our business. And so if it's not well modeled, if it's not designed properly, then it's going to be very uh, difficult for that data to be useful. And right now, the modern data stack doesn't, it helps you move data from A to B, but it doesn't actually help the data become more useful. Got it. And startups have a, a trade-off issue to deal with here when it comes to uh, data modeling, right? Like, 
on one hand, they need to move fast, which means they'll take shortcuts, mm-hmm. uh, but it leaves a, a trail of debt behind, like tech debt. And uh, if they do good data modeling, take their time, uh, it's just, it's slow. And startups, the one thing they don't have is time. So how do you advise startups who are just starting out to approach this this trade-off issue? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that in the world of software engineering, we haven't perfectly solved this problem, but it's a lot better than it is in data. If you look at the architecture of any application when there's only three or four software engineers working on it, and the the, the sort of fundamental architecture when there's a thousand uh, engineers working on it, it's gone through a lot of change. It, it looks very, very different. Data, that's not usually the case, right? The tables that are built um, and sort of the, the source uh, databases that are built in the very early stages of the company, you fast forward five or six or seven years, these things still exist. And oftentimes they still exist in their original form or they've only been changed slightly. And the entire data foundation, the, the rest of the architecture is now built on top of this very, very early universe where people weren't really thinking about the data that we needed. They weren't thinking about how the business was going to change. Um, so agile is a concept which is common in software engineering. It basically says, look, we're, we know that we're building, um, tech debt laden systems. Um, we will be able, to, as long as we can respond in an agile way, to problems as they emerge, and we can incrementally improve these systems iteratively, uh, then everything's going to work out. Is there going to be some temporary pain? Yes, probably. But um, it is through these like gradual refactors that that we sort of pay down tech debt. We do not have that process in the da- in, in the warehouse or, or in any storage environment or in our databases. The tech debt just accumulates essentially for infinity. And at some point in time, it, it becomes fundamentally uh, impossible or, or close to impossible to to manage as a consumer. Right. No, that's the that's, that's a great point. All right. So let's let's go to uh, the other side of the table. So you've been a, a scout for Cowboy Ventures and Innovation Endeavors, an advisor to Tola Capital, an LP to Essence Venture Capital. So you've been in this domain, and when you're looking for investment opportunities, right? When you're scouting them, what gets you excited about a company? Yeah. Um, and recently, actually, like one more that you can add on is that I'm, I'm a, a scout for Sequoia as well. So oh, amazing. Um, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's great. I'm super excited about that. But the, so um, question is, uh, what, what gets me excited? So the, the thing, a, a lot of investors will talk about this, but they, they have a thesis about the world, right? What is the world going to look like in the next five to 10 years? And then they invest based on how well companies fit into that mental model. Now, you can break that mental model, but the investor is generally starting from a place of belief. And they want to understand, based on that belief system, how does this particular startup uh, sort sort of engage? Are, are they behind the curve? Are they ahead of the curve? Can they update the belief system and so on? So the startups that I really, really like are the ones that fit into uh, my belief system and fundamentally are pushing the world of, of data and machine learning and um, uh, artificial intelligence towards the long-term view that I think would be, would be best. Um, so we've talked a lot about data modeling. We've talked a lot about 
you know, the, the poor performance of the warehouse and its lack of scalability. So if, if a company comes to me and says, yeah, I think that those are problems too. And here's how my company is going to solve them. And here is the long-term vision that I have and why uh, and how we can get there from where we are today. I'm usually very attracted to, to those types of pitches. Um, the things that are less attractive or less interesting to me are the companies that basically say, yeah, we built something really cool at our organization and we think a lot of people are going to buy it. Or, you know, we think that this is sort of, uh, we imagine that this is a big problem in the industry, but we don't really have any sort of philosophy about where the world is going or why it's changing and why it's going to change, uh, in a way that will allow our, our company to scale. Um, so those those are the things I get excited about is is you know the the, the philosophical vision the the long term and and something that aligns with the problems that I see every day. No, that that's amazing, and it's so much packed here. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into it a little bit. So you mentioned the themes, right? So obviously, if um, if somebody's working on on a theme that you are passionate about, or uh, how you see the world, it, it just, it's a better fit. So you mentioned data modeling, uh, data warehousing, obviously big problems to solve. Now, many of the listeners are you know, builders of ML and data products, either they're at companies or they're about to launch side product or they're starting new companies. So what other themes are uh, exciting right now for investors, just, just as a general uh, North Star for people listening? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot. Um, the data space and the ML space are very nascent. Um, the reason there's so much hype around data and ML products right now is because really it's, it's mainly because of Snowflake. Um, Snowflake had the biggest tech IPO of all time and yeah. investors realized Wow, data in the cloud can can be massive business. And by the way, biggest tech IPO of all time, and they only have about five to ten percent market penetration. So the ceiling for Snowflake is still enormous. Yeah, um, yeah. Databricks, you know, uh, also also validated that. Um, we're seeing a massive push for companies of all sizes to start uh, leveraging machine learning. And the, the next set of problems that I find investors are, are really thinking about and excited about is how do you make these artificial intelligence systems or machine learning systems or data useful? We've kind of gotten, we've sort of gotten to the point where we know that these are important. Uh, we know that they have value, but how do you make them useful? How do you, um, actually deploy an ML model in a rapid way, understand uh, how to improve it, experiment on it, um, observe, observe the results, capture the, the meaning and impact of those results and communicate it to the rest of the business. Um, Streamlit, which was a Python-based uh, web app uh, development tool, sold to Snowflake for $800 million, right? And the whole, yeah. the whole thesis of Streamlit is... Um, it's really meaningful for uh, data people and, and, and ML people to build these applications on top of machine learning models like leveraging Python because fundamentally we're serving the business, right? We want to enable the business to answer some valuable questions. So I find that that is like a really compelling pitch to investors is not just, hey, here's some infrastructure, right? And we think that this infrastructure is going to 
make, you know, working with data better or easier or whatever. It's how is this infrastructure going to meaningfully impact the business? Can we tie it to an end customer that's like generating revenue for the company? Yeah, actually Streamlit is one of my favorite products. And uh, I remember the first time I saw it, the the aha moment i kind of it, it, it i remember that so it's it's a great it's a great product and obviously you know snowflake acquired it now i do want to talk about the ml product so let's so two types one is if you can build it for ml and data practitioners you know your product is used by them or you can infuse ml into a product that's used by someone else. Like, for example, infusing ML into a CRM tool. Now, mm-hmm. between these two broad themes, are you equally excited about both or um, are you more excited about something that's built for the ML and data practitioners just because it has more, you know, they, they tend to penetrate more, right? So how do you think about the products here? I mean, I think that they are both fundamentally very valuable and useful. Um, I can say, though, for me personally, I tend to invest when I am the target customer, right? When I can, and that's just because right. I, I understand what I would do. And I'm, right. I'm a buyer at Convoy. Like, I, I buy a lot of tools. I, we pay, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, for, 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 for um, um, companies in the data infrastructure space. And, um, so if someone comes to me with a pitch for a data infrastructure project, like I can tell really quickly whether or not, yep, absolutely. This is something I would buy, or this is something that I would have bought five years ago, or this seems like something that I would buy five years from now. Um, if someone comes to me more with like a, Hey, we have a CRM tool and we we've infused artificial intelligence into it. That seems really useful. But it's hard for me as a non-buyer to uh, evaluate if someone would actually think it, it is useful, right? I'm not a, I'm not a VC. And the thing, the advantage that the VC has over me is time to where they can go and do diligence, right? Like they can go and right. talk to that persona and understand, hey, is this a useful thing? I, I don't have, I don't have that time. So I can only operate from my own persona. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a fair point. And, uh, and it, it is something that, uh, listeners who are who are builders they should i think understand that the person you're talking to it there's just a higher likelihood of success if they really understand it and if they are personally a buyer or a user it's it's that much better all right so that's uh that that's great and coming back to identifying opportunities now obviously you have a you have a newsletter you are you're a scout so obviously you are you're well known within the community but how do you put yourself in a position where you come across great companies so is it is it just your personal network is it slack communities is it like how, how do you do it um so for me personally something i actually realized um before i even got into uh big data and machine learning is that the way you grow your network meaningfully and 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 quickly is by providing value to others Real, real value to others, not sort of right. pseudo, pseudo value. Um, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter influencer, wake up at 4 a.m. and grind type, type of motivation. Right. Like, I'm sure that that gets you, I don't know, it gets you some level of clout and maybe that makes people feel good. But providing like real deep, um, applicable value to your, uh, the, the persona that you want to empathize with um, and, and, ha- and, and have a connection with, 
to me has always has always been sort of the the best way of um, encountering opportunities. Um, if people feel that you really understand the space and you really understand the problem, you are someone who's actively working on solutions and you have um, uh, relatively uh, deep thoughts on on the space. Um, you know, I get I get probably dozens of startups uh, that reach out to me. You know, every week um, or, or every other week, um, mm -hmm. and and it's just because you know. Uh, I think it's I think it's clear that I that I think very deeply about some of these about some of these issues. I, and honestly, there's probably a lot of people in the space that are also thinking deeply about these issues. They're just not letting other people know they're thinking deeply about these issues. And so, <laughs> right. um, no, no one can find you. Right. No one has any idea that like you're being thoughtful and you're solving these problems in, internally. Uh, yeah. So something I have a I have a very good friend who used to work at, at Microsoft and one of the things that we talked about when I would write LinkedIn posts is he'd say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm always surprised when, when you write something that I think is relatively common sense and you have hundreds of people in the comments saying, Oh, I, I never realized that. And what it kind of taught him and a few, few of the other folks that sort of are at the, the upper end of their careers it, is that everybody is at a different journey. There are some people that are just starting off in data there's some people that have been doing it for two or three years. There's some people that have been doing it for a couple of years, but they're the first data engineer at like a series A startup. There's some folks that are working in a legacy company that's a hundred years old and they they just hate their lives and they're being smashed by tech debt. There's some people yeah. that are loving their lives and they're working for a fang business and being paid millions of dollars. And like there, there's not a single persona for a, a particular role. And so, um, by, by putting out knowledge that you think is valuable, you're always going to find someone that, that could, that could benefit from it. Perfect. Uh, no, that's so much good insight here. All right. One, one last question before we go to the rapid fire round, you recently wrote an article on your Substack about data collaboration. It, it's one of my favorite topics and anything that enables good collaboration is just, uh, is just, I, I love reading that. All right. You said that a well-designed software that enables you to work with your team seamlessly can be magical. So when it comes to data, what does collaboration mean to you? And also, what features uh, does a good collaboration software have? Yeah, so there's a few really excellent um, collaboration software that exists out in the world today that I, I personally look for for uh, information. For, uh, um, that shapes my opinion on this. Uh, GitHub is a great example, right? It is a, uh, even though at its core, it's for managing source control, the thing that really elevated GitHub to become the source control tool of choice was its collaboration features. Um, I think Figma is another great example of collaboration manifesting in the design space. I think uh, Google Docs and Notion are great examples of collaboration manifesting in sort of the document writing space and sort of the documentation space, which is which is probably has a, a subtle but but still important difference. Um, the the core components of great collaboration to me are um, uh, version control. It is uh, having some level of of change management. Um, being able to uh, roll changes back if you if you don't like you know, what, what, what changes have been made, uh, commenting, um, having some connection to 
who who are the people that are commenting like who is this individual um and uh and also i think a broader uh sort of interconnectivity of whatever that asset is uh with other assets that that are being generated elsewhere right you don't just care about your document you care about everybody's document you care about every document that you've ever produced and you need to find a way to very easily discover those documents right things i think that we we take for granted in tools like google docs are so well designed that it doesn't even occur to us that in the data and machine learning space there's really nothing like that like there's really nothing that makes collaboration and and search and and, and interaction around data assets very simple right no, it's really good insight and i think for anybody who is um who's building a tool uh, or, or a product in that in that area. I think something definitely to keep in mind. All right, with that, we are at the rapid fire round. Uh, I'll ask a series of questions and would love to hear your answers. Okay, let's do it. All right, uh, question number one, what's your favorite book? Um, favorite book, I would say, is The Tyranny of Metrics by Jerry Muller. Perfect. What tool do you end up using the most for your work? Jira. What has been the biggest development in AI over the last five years? It's not the last five years, but I think the move to the cloud has changed basically everything. ELT, maybe. Right. What's the most manual part of the data science role today? To me, the thing that I I really wish, uh, the the most manual part, honestly, I would say is still the human, it's still the human element. It's, It's understanding what data exists, how does the business work? Where can we find information? What does that information mean? And, and how do we use it? Uh, what service or tool do you wish existed today for data practitioners to upskill themselves? Hmm. Um, I, I, I sort of said this before, but I, I really wish that there was a better collaboration surface for data, not just data applications like dashboards and things like that but the data itself i think that would be tremendously valuable right when it comes to educating yourself on new topic what type of content do you prefer i like youtube i could watch youtube videos all day yeah and i love love videos too all right final question what's your number one advice to founders building a, a new product for data practitioners I would say take a first principles approach to the problem. Don't just think about the issues that people say that they have. Try to understand how, uh, why, why they have those issues and think through the interconnected workflow of data. What does the entire life cycle of data and machine learning actually look like? What a lot of people, uh, one of the big problems I, I think people have is that they, they focus too much on a point solution without re- realizing that the real problem was called was caused by not having a, a great workflow. Right, taking a first principles approach—it's just a fantastic way of approaching any problem, not just this. And uh, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Just having a, a full view, not just like a point solution, but really really understand your user or customer. What are they going through? Like start to end, what do they have to do and how can you make it faster, better, easier for them? Mm. Uh, Chad, this has been so good. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. So many good insights. Uh, Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you. It's been great to be here. 
What a wonderful discussion on the modern data stack, data modeling, how Chad identifies great ML opportunities, uh, what's it like being a scout for Sequoia Capital, uh, data modeling, how to do it right, and data collaboration tools. Thanks to Chad for coming onto the show, and thanks to Joe Reyes for making the connection. You can visit infinitemachinelearning.com to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you soon with another amazing episode.